Let's pray. Father, this morning, as I come before you as your servant, I pray, Lord, that as we look at this epistle, this your word, I pray that we would learn from it well. Uh, so, Lord, you can take it and use it in our life to enable us to live out our Christian faith. And Lord, I pray that you would even enable us to do it during times of trouble. I pray that we would shine forth uh, to your glory when we're in the pressure cooker of life. And Lord, when things are going easy, it's sometimes easy. But Lord, when it's hard, I pray, Lord, that we wouldn't jettison what we believe because it gets difficult, but we would get better at it. We would learn more from it. And so teach us from First Peter how to do that. And bless our time together in your word. And I pray in Christ's name, amen. So I said already that the Apostle Peter is writing to a group of Christians who were living, as it were, in a pressure cooker uh, in the region of Asia Minor, now, of course, modern-day Turkey. Uh, it's becoming, in the text, uh, more hostile for anyone to even dare to uh, name the name of Jesus, to be connected in any way to Jesus. And so Peter thought it important for his recipients to understand three major areas in time of rising persecution. The first area, which we're still covering, is the area of salvation. What does salvation mean for the believer, and why is it going to help us during times of trouble? Secondly, it's going to be the area of submission. Who do I submit to during times of suffering? All right, And then actual suffering itself, what, what is it, and why does the Lord allow it, uh, is the next thing, the last thing that he deals with in the epistle. So Peter is really writing, describing uh, who his readers are as to their literal status and as to their spiritual status. He wants his readers uh, to see themselves correctly, to see themselves as God sees them. He calls uh, believers elect foreigners. He exalts them far above the natives in whom they live. And the reason why is because they are God's chosen people. While they are scattered uh, amongst people that are not God's chosen people. So God's election has made us foreigners and aliens in this world. Yet God has raised all his children to an exalted state. But you don't always feel the exalted state when you're going through trouble and trial. We have before us really a Jew and a Gentile audience in this epistle. They were aliens, says in verse number one. They, that means they lived in a hostile society. Also, they were scattered. Uh, they were not living in one place as a united, protected community. They were living really uh, without a permanent residence. Also, they were chosen. They were chosen in whom, of course, is one of the main things in verse number one. It says, who are chosen. And so, so far in our outline of First Peter, we have looked at uh, the destiny of the Christian, which will be salvation, and then the literal s- status of a believer, of the, of the chosen, those who have been called are, will be aliens, they will be... Uh, called to 
citizens of another kingdom, and of course, they will also be, secondly, uh, the literal state will be that they will be um, The spiritual status will be that they're, uh, of the chosen will be, number one, that they, the basis of God's choosing them found in verse number two, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And then the sphere of God's choosing them in verse two, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. And thirdly, the purpose of God's choosing them, and that is simply, as we saw last week, to obey Jesus Christ in verse number two. Uh, to obey Jesus and be sprinkled with his blood. And then, of course, he ends with, may grace and peace be yours in full measure. And then, of course, this morning we're looking at the continuing on the spiritual status of a believer and looking at the hope of salvation. Now, look at verse number 3 through 5. Let me read that this morning. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for the salvation, for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. So now Peter continues to move the hearts of those who are studying this book and hearing this book to see and understand their exalted position as natives of a heavenly kingdom while experiencing the stresses of living as strangers and foreigners in this wrecked world, uh, this wretched world, a world that is fallen and defiled, populated by people have who people having corrupt minds and deceitful hearts see their minds are darkened by sin and because of that there has been a fallout in our own generation of our own postmodern world that has left us a slew of isms uh, that we have to deal with in the thinking of our society. The first one is relativism. That means there's no absolutes. Second one is pluralism. Everyone's opinion is equal in value to everyone else's opinion. Third one would be secularism. The human, uh, human ability without God. The next would be narcissism. Answers are found within self and self can know reality. And then our own homespun USA-ism, pragmatism, we cannot know reality. What we must settle for is what works, and that's pretty much the philosophy of our country. Whatever works, that's what we do, right? That's how we uh, conclude things. And then there's uh, deconstructionism. Uh, that's in the literary world. The reader is the interpreter, and the text even the Bible means what the reader thinks it means. All right, so that's what it is saying, uh, it, what we're dealing with in the thinking of our society, that all those things are taking place pretty much all at the same time. So how are those who have come to know God's favor 
and understand that they are objects of God's affections, how are they to prepare in times of the difficulty of life? During difficult and conflicting times, our minds too quickly go to believe that God has forgotten us or God has abandoned us. And sometimes we do feel abandoned during times of difficulty. We feel forsaken. We feel alone in this world. I know you and I have felt that way from time to time. And when we do, we often think incorrectly about who we are. And we forget what God has done for us. We forget about what is really happening to us. So then, how are we to think? How are we to live when we face the stresses of living as strangers and foreigners in this world? Puritan pastor Thomas Watson once wrote, knowledge of biblical doctrine is the soul as an anchor to the ship that holds it steady in the midst of the rolling waves of error or the violent winds of persecution. So if the church loses the anchor of doctrine, of teaching, of teaching of the word of God, the smallest provocation may cause it to drift off course. See, doctrine actually focuses on the most amazing person in the world. And it is meant to unite you to others as we strive together to be to be what God has called us to be. See, doctrine actually represents the immense privilege that God has given us to know what really is truth. What is really true about him, about ourself, about the rest of humanity, about this world, and about the future. We can actually know that from the word of God. So as we continue this Lord's Day to explore the spiritual status of the chosen, especially salvation's future goal, and that, of course, in that goal is the term of hope that the believer has and others do not have, our status as Christians is actually based on God's acts and his blessings. What are the things that we ought to be thinking about starting today? We need to start dwelling upon the acts and the blessings of God. In other words, we need to be start thinking Christianly. Many of life's endeavors respond, really require study and before we can do any kind of action. A playbook is, necess- is, a, is a necessary tool for teaching different strategies on the football field. Blueprints are also necessary to make sure a structure is being built according to the proper specifications. Elite military teams such as Marine Corps Force Recon and Navy SEALs, Army Delta Forces, Green Berets and Air Force Night Stalkers meticulously plan out strategies and then practice each step in those strategies to physical exhaustion before entering into enemy territory. These special forces plan and practice aggressively in order to be several steps ahead of the adversary, 
hoping to give themselves an advantage. See, Christians also have a playbook so they can understand their Christian experience more accurately. They also have blueprints to make sure that they are building with the right building material according to the proper specifications. Christians can enter the arena of the world, the arena of world thought, with a biblical worldview, knowing that, knowing that they have revealed truth on their side, truth that is absolute, objective, propositional, and eternal. Truth is not, as postmodern thinking espouses, merely relative, experiential, or short-lived. Christians need to be informed by the Word of God so that they think God's way concerning living as strangers and sojourners on this earth. There is really no other way for Christians to think. We have to think Christianly. We live in a time that things are changing in the matter of how people think. In fact, there was a man named Harry Blamiers who wrote, warning the British church of its rapid, rapid departure from truth, calling for the restoration of the Christian mindset based on Scripture. And he said this to them. He said, our culture is bedeviled by it's all a matter of opinion code. In the sphere of religious and moral thinking, we are rapidly heading for a state of intellectual anarchy in which the difference between truth and falsehood will no longer be recognized. Indeed, it would seem possible that the words true and false will eventually and logically be replaced by the words likable and dislikable. Whatever you like and don't like, it's not a matter of truth. Christian truth is objective. It's four square. It's unshakable. It's not built on men's opinions. It's not something fabricated either by scholars or by men in the street. You do not make truth. You reside in truth. A suitable image of truth would be that of a lighthouse lashed by the elemental fury of undisciplined error. Those who have come to reside in the truth must stay there. It is not their business to go back into error for the purpose of joining their drowning fellows with the pretense that inside or outside, the con conditions are pretty much the same. It is their duty to draw others within the shelter of truth, for truth is most certainly a shelter, and it is inviolable. But if we start to dismantle it and give it away in bits to those outside there will be nothing left to protect our own heads. No refuge in which to receive the others should they at length grow weary of error and start searching for truth. See, Blumer's words were written over 50 years ago and are appropriate in our present time. Thinking Christianly is thinking biblically informing one's mind about every topic from God's word. So that means that we are to think about, first of all, who God is and what he has done. We need to be spending time thinking about his great acts, 
concerning our own salvation, the blessings that flow to us because of them, properly handling the difficulties of life, sufferings, and persecution must flow from a transformed mind, a biblical mind. See, our minds must start with Scripture so that we get the correct understanding of his character, and then we must dwell on God. The the focus of our attention is first placed on who he is, and then the thoughts of a believer is to be uh, placed on what he has done. So first we must focus in on the Godhead. That must be our first things, that our minds must dwell upon God so that we think correctly of God and speak well of God. Now, the most important endeavor that you will ever embark upon is the pursuit of knowing God. Several writers have written about this and said a right conception of God is basic not only to systematic theology but to practical Christian living. And error in doctrine rises from imperfect and ignoble thoughts about God. It was John Calvin who remarked uh, on our detrimental tendency as humans to uh, beings to keep our gaze fixed too much on the earthly and not enough on the heavenly. He said that if we just once lift our gaze to heaven and contemplate the kind of being God is, we gain a very different perspective on ourselves and our world. So isn't that the big problem today? That our thinking does not start with God and what God is and what God has done. We too quickly start by examining ourselves and our needs But here we have an epistle before us that emphasizes throughout the glory of the greatness of God and his eternality, who is over all, and it also gives us a sense of his indescribable glory. If you notice in chapter 1, verse number 13, it says what we are to do. It says, therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So in other words, this particular passage of Scripture directs our attention to prepare our minds for something, our thinking for something. And so what are we to do first? Well, we're to think first on God. And I want you to direct your attention on verse number 3 of chapter 1. It says, There, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, this term blessed is actually the word we get in the Greek eulogy from. It means to speak well of. So we speak well of God when we truly say what he is and what he does in his attributes and works. But, of course, we need to know what he does in his works, and who he is in his character. And we must confess this morning that there is far too little contemplation of God in our minds about 
who he is and what he has accomplished. Too little praise of him in our hearts. But if you notice what the Apostle Peter does, he rises first to pronounce a blessing on God. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The first thing he does, before ever mentioning to his readers the difficult circumstances that they are in, or how suffering is important, or how they are to conduct, conduct their lives in an evil world, he first adjusts their focus on our great God, the great God of salvation. That's where he looks at first. He says of our Lord Jesus Christ, he uses the full, actually, designation of the Lord. Uh, Jesus is his human name, and it draws attention to the humanity of our Lord. And that particular word is derived from, actually, the Latin in the form of the Greek transliteration of the Hebrew word Joshua, abbreviation of that. Yahweh, in other words, Yahweh is salvation. His point is that the Savior is one of whom I can say at one and the same time that he is Lord of all, that he is Messiah and also Jesus. He is God and he is man. If God is near us, which blessing also includes God being near us for good, then we don't need to be unbelieving. We don't need to be sorrowful. We do not need to be afraid. We need not be captives of sin. We are able to overcome it by divine help. We can master ourselves because God is near us to give us the victory. And as a result of this teaching, we ought to be filled with awe and worship. We can speak well of God concerning our salvation. And that's what he's looking at now. How can I speak well of God concerning what he has done for me, what he has done for you? Well, that's what we're going to notice this morning. And it's the first thing. There are, considering the spiritual status of believers, the first, we want to direct our minds to what we ought to discipline our minds to dwell upon. And here in our text, there are at least three things to fix our minds upon this morning, which I want you to see in the text. Three things. And the first thing is that we ought to think about the new birth that flows out of our salvation. Look at verse number three. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again. And there's the thought right there. The thought is, this is what we ought to be thinking about. We ought to be thinking about what God has done for us in our salvation. So in other words, we are to think about this new birth that has been given to us that flows out of the salvation that God planned for us before the world was ever created. That God's mercy is seen as great when we contemplate what we once were in our fallen natural birth and what we are now by virtue of our spiritual birth or rebirth. When we think of this word mercy in our text, we have to kind of go back and define other words too to help us understand it. For example, the word justice 
means the justice of God means people will get quite accurately what they deserve from God if they're left in their sin, and that would be his justice and his wrath. But then there's another word that we use often, and it's the word grace. Grace means God giving you what you do not deserve. His forgiveness based on Christ's substitutionary sacrifice. But then this word mercy is is a bit different. Mercy means that God will not give you what you do deserve. And what do you deserve? What do I deserve? I deserve his wrath. I deserve his, his complete justice for my sin and my rebellion against him. That's what we all deserve. So mercy is described as being great because God does not give us what we do deserve. He's his just judgment for our rebellion and our disobedience. See, great is a superlative word. It's a word that tried, it, it tops up all, all other words. There's no higher, higher word you can use than this word great. Uh, and it means that God's mercy is abundant mercy. It's a mercy that doesn't run out. But it is a mercy based on him withholding his justice from you. See, disobedience is the distinctive character of people in sin. We all know too much of that. Not merely disobedience to a command, but also of unbelief. A heartfelt refusal to place one's confidence in something or someone, in this case, in Christ. So it is man's self Assertion, asserting himself against God, that is really what rebellion is. Man is sinful and fallen by nature. He has a bad heart because of Adam's sin nature that was passed on to him, and he also has a bad record because he will commit his own acts of sin. It says in Corinthians 15.22, For as by one man disobedience By one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. But by the obedience of one, many shall be made righteous. Another passage says, as in Adam all die, so even in Christ all shall be made alive. So you see, our predicament without Christ is something we ought to think about because we were the object of God's wrath. Due to our failure to live up to the standard of God's holiness, we were under God's wrath, and upon our death, we would have been justly condemned to an eternity in hell. That means the human condition, apart from the gospel, is a constant state of rebellion against God. The tragedy of all this is not only in the reality of hell, but as as the punishment for sins, but the fact that humans are helpless to do anything about it. That man on the inside has corruption and death, and man on the outside with his fellow humans is engaged in combat, and with his God, with the Creator, he is at enmity and under his wrath. So the entrance of sin into the human race has wrecked havoc on everything. This is who we were outside of Christ. We were dead in trespasses and sin, led about according to the course of this world, according to the prince and the power of the air, 
the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience, and in our manner of life we lived in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and the mind, and while in that state remained under the wrath of God. So, so what power is going to rescue a sinner from that predicament? Well, no power but God's power. So if you look at our text, in verse number 3, it says this. It says, who according to his great mercy, notice what it says. According to his great mercy, he caused us to be born again. See, the text is pointing out to us that we are, after God began to act upon us with resurrection power, we were in a predicament that we could do nothing about it ourselves. In other words, what you and I are now post-conversion. You see, we must often be reminded of what we once were and what God has now made us to be. The scripture is saying that by his great mercy, he caused us to be born again. So that means that all people either receive justice or they receive mercy. If they receive Christ, they receive mercy. If not, they receive justice. And justice means that people get quite correctly what they deserve in light of what they have done based on what they know. Justice will come with what people do with and how people respond to God's natural revelation. Mercy and justice will come with what people do with what and how they respond to God's special revelation, that revelation revealed in Christ Jesus. So this Greek term, mercy, brings to mind several synonyms. Clemency, compassion, pity. See, mercy is actually pity shown to weak guilty, and undeserving people. So then mercy indicates the emotion aroused by someone in need and then the attempt to relieve that person and remove the trouble. Titus says it like this, he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewing by the Spirit of God. God saw our despicable and our helpless state, and he met the need by begetting us spiritually. In Christ, he caused us to be born again. See, we need to be born again, don't we? You cannot be a Christian without being born again. Being born again is what defines Christians. If you listen to the Gospel of John, it says Jesus said to them, to him actually, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So without being born again, we are not able to enter the kingdom of God. But what is the kingdom of God? It is the saving and transforming reign established by Jesus and is synonymous with the phrase eternal life. Jesus is saying then, 
It is that unless you are born again, you are unable to have eternal life. You are unable to come into the kingdom in which I dwell, which righteousness dwells, where there is no unholy thing, where there is purity. You cannot get there unless you're born again. So somebody might say, well, I don't want to live forever. My life has been hard enough. I've been in hell down on this earth. I don't want to prolong it anymore. Well, somebody who says that, they don't know what home is like. They don't realize what heaven is like. And they misread the character of God. So what's the eternal uh, alternative to eternal life? The alternative to eternal life is not temporary life, but eternal damnation in hell. The alternative to life is not temporary, for it says the wages of sin is death. So then, what Jesus is saying is that unless you are born again, you will face an eternity separated from God in hell. Without being born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. He could not stress that any stronger than he did. So what does Jesus mean by born again? Jesus is really making entrance into the kingdom comparable with physical birth. He is saying that unless we experience a spiritual birth, we don't have a chance of having eternal life. Please understand the impossibility of what Jesus is requiring. Yes, impossibility. God, in his mercy, needs to cause us to be born again if you are going to be born again at all. That's the point of what he means when he says that we are the chosen. See, just as God caused you to be physically born, so God must cause you to be born spiritually. So just as you could not determine your physical birth, You cannot determine your spiritual birth. Only God can do that. So we all must be born again if we are to enter into eternal life and be spared eternal destruction that awaits us if we are not. So notice how impossible this all is. If you are going to be spared eternal judgment in hell, you must be born of God. But I can't cause myself to be born again any more than I can cause myself to be born the first time physically. It must be by the mercy of God. And the mercy of God included God, the Father in eternity past, who chose us in Christ to be holy and blameless. He predestined us to be adopted as sons, pouring out his mercy and grace on us in Christ Jesus, and then God the Son came into history. History passed for us, redeemed us through his blood, bringing us forgiveness, lavishing on us gifts of wisdom and understanding. Even now we are included in Christ and looking forward. We're looking forward to the complete fulfillment of God's plan and the glory that fulfillment holds for us. And then the Holy Spirit in the present. What does he do? He convicts us of sin, of righteousness, of judgment. He regenerates us, makes us new. He baptizes us into the body of Christ. He seals us until the day of redemption. He fills us, indwells us, sets us apart for God to make us more and more holy. Then he ministers 
spiritual gifts to us so we can serve each other until that day. So each person of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, has been involved in bringing us the mercy and the grace of God in which now we stand. We are born again when the life of God is implanted in our souls. See, every day, every day we ought to be thinking about our new birth and what has happened to us because that is going to make our mind ready for anything that could come to us. So that brings me to a second thing that our mind ought to be thinking about. We ought to be thinking about the new hope that flows out of our salvation. Now, if you go back to chapter 1, if you look at verse number 3 again, it says this at the end of verse 3. It says, we are cause, he caused, His grace mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So now he is speaking about us having a hope. Hope here can be defined as a mighty certainty. What makes Christian hope so strong is our growing knowledge of God. Hope here is the realization that you have been called to be a Christian, The call came from the offer of the gospel in which you responded in repentance and faith. See, God brings his children from an empty, false, deceptive, dead hope to a strong, active, living hope. See, the hope rests on God's power and his promise. And why is that? Because Jesus was raised to life. We will live because he lives. A living hope can never be extinguished because of what Christ has done. Christ not only was raised from the dead, but he also ascended back to heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father. That's where he is right now. So hope speaks of our response to God's promises. In other words, he offers us hope We can have hope in him, and of course, he guarantees that hope will come to pass. We can believe God with confidence. That's the kind of hope it is. So then the hope here is not, I hope so. I hope it happens. That's just a wishful longing. That's not what it means, a biblical hope. A biblical hope looks forward with Utter conviction and expectancy. It is not a hope mingled with uncertainty and doubt. Those who live in doubt, that's the opposite of faith, are essentially denying that the hope God gives is actually true. See, hope is always has a future in mind. It always has something in front of it. It points eagerly ahead to the consummation of salvation's plan. So a Christian's hope is connected to the first end-time event that has already taken place. And what is that first end-time event? It says in our text, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. See, Jesus, who voluntarily left his home and descended to an exilic-like existence on earth. In other words, he was also an alien and stranger on earth. 
when he did that, he accomplished his redemptive work on the cross. He defeated Satan, and he returned to heaven. That's what he did. It is a reminder that our ability to arrive safely at God's home is rooted in God's mercy and grounded in this great truth that we are born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So the past end time event accomplished solely by the power of God helps us hold fast to our hope for the future, the hope of complete salvation. And don't forget what the scripture records alongside of Jesus' resurrection, like in the Gospel of Matthew. Remember when Jesus was raised from the dead, or who was dying on the cross and he was raised from the dead? This is what the Bible also says, and we can't miss it. It says, the tombs were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep raised Coming out of the tombs after the resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. In other words, saying to us this, that Jesus' resurrection guarantees our resurrection. And that's where our hope is. Our hope is in the guarantee that we will be raised also from the dead. We will enter into eternity with Christ. See, Christ arose and many other of the saints arose also, that all those who trust in Christ will be resurrected. We ought to be thinking about our new hope every single day. See, that is the thing that transforms our mind. Brethren, our salvation is so incredibly grand and vast. It is, it's it's in, almost impossible to, to understand all the implications that go with it. It is even difficult for our great apostle here, Paul, to muster together the vocabulary to try to help us wrap our minds around it, especially to wrap our minds around what we have as those chosen in Christ Jesus. See, a persecuted persecuted Christian may not have very much while living as an alien and a stranger in this world, so they are reminded, Scripture reminds us, of the magnitude of our inheritance that God has already, he already has for us. And look at how he does it in verse number four, all right? So this would bring us to the third and the final thing that we ought to think in this passage of Scripture, and it's this. We ought to think about the sure inheritance that flows out of our salvation. And this is what he says in verse number four, to obtain an inheritance to obtain an inheritance. Now, an inheritance is usually passed on after the death of someone. Well, the death of the person that passes it on to us is Christ himself. And it says here, to obtain an inheritance. What kind of inheritance? Not just any old inheritance. And this is where, where Peter is finding, trying to find words to describe the, the magnitude of what is ours in Christ Jesus and what we're going to experience when we finally drop off these bodies and go into the presence of God and we are made perfect in his presence. He says, first of all, notice, it says in verse number four, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable. That's the first word he uses. What is that? That is no destructive force like moth or rust or thieves or any corrosive 
material can destroy it. It's like what, what, what it says in Matthew chapter 6, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But in verse 20, he says, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. And where your treasure is, there where your, will your heart be also. So he is saying that, listen, we have a treasure, we have an inheritance that's imperishable. It's hard. It's, it's hard to imagine a world without locks or without alarms, where there are no jails, no police force, no need for a military. See, as long as we live in this world that is fallen and defiled, we are in great need of those things. Because as soon as you don't have the police, you have anarchy. As soon as you don't have the military, you have other countries taking over your country. So we need those things while we're in this world. There's a complete lack of security in earthly possessions. All things earthly bear the seed of corruption and decay. Nothing stays new. Everything breaks apart. Everything rusts, decays. See, so the moment we begin to live, we begin to die. But here it's saying to us, God assures us that our inheritance will be free from death and decay. That's an assurance given to those who are going to enter into persecution, which may mean that their possessions are taken away, that what they strive for their whole life may not be there because they're connected to Christ, because they're believers. I mean, believers are experiencing this in other parts of the world where they lose everything. They even lose their life. But see, if they're assured of these passages and of the truths that are in them, this is the strength that transforms our mind to think on the right things and not on the wrong things. Then there's a second word he uses in verse number four. He says that this inheritance is undefiled. That means it is pure. Nothing can stain it or make it dirty or impure. It says in Revelation, referring to the celestial city, it says nothing unclean and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. So in this particular word, God assures that our inheritance will be free from uncleanness and moral and spiritual impurity. Nothing could come in and ruin it. And then he uses a third word in verse 4, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away. Unfading, it is certain, meaning it cannot wither like or become old and worn. It is not like the grass that withers or flowers that bloom and then wither away. It will never lose its vibrancy and delight. See, God assures us that our inheritance will be free from the ravages of time. So our great God of mercy ensures his children of the eternal validity of our inheritance that will never be polluted, 
never be subject to decay, and never be destroyed. So you hear people say, it sounds too good to be true, and if it sounds too good to be true, it's probably what? Not true, right? See, the, and of course it's a scam usually. Just another sinner trying to get over on another human being. That's what usually happens. But brethren, here's the reality of it. Here is something that sounds too good to be true, yet is true. See, that's the key thing here. It is true because it is backed by the character and the promise and the power of God. And if that's not enough, there's three other things Scripture tells us about this inheritance that reinforces what's already been said. And look at it says in verse number four. It says that it's, it's reserved in heaven. It says to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, for me, for you. See, it's guarded in an eternal place. Actually, the term reserved is a military verb. It's a military metaphor and refers to a fortress with strong walls being guarded by a battalion of soldiers. See, the verb is also in the perfect tense, meaning that it has a a present and a continuous implication that God is reserving it in heaven and will continue to reserve it in heaven with your name on it. See, that's for us. That's the encouragement that we receive from Scripture. And then secondly, it also says this. It says in verse number 5, you are protected by the power of God. So not only is our inheritance reserved in heaven, but it says you who are protected by the power of God, that we ourselves are protected by the power of God, that this is the power only the Godhead shares God is the one who guards and keeps our inheritance for us. God is the guardian who keeps it safe for us and keeps us safe to receive it in its fullness. If we, if we just peruse Scripture, we would find that God's been about this kind of stuff all through the Word of God. We, we think about Daniel in the lion's den. Daniel didn't get eaten in the lion's den. God protected him. We think about Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, these three men that were thrown into a a furnace, heated seven times the normal, which even killed the people that brought them there, and they walked out without even the smell of smoke on them. Why? Because God protected them there. We think of Job, who uh, God sets bounds around Satan to only do what Job, what he says he can. We think of Paul and his shipwrecks and his his hardships and his persecutions that God protect him in all this. And then even the author of this epistle, Peter. I want you to turn to a passage of scripture to get this one. Peter understood what was going on and why he wrote there, knowing the power of God in rescuing and protecting. Look at what it says in Acts chapter 12, in verse number 3 through 11. We see this where Peter gets thrown into Herod's prison. He gets thrown there, and notice the narrative in Acts chapter 12, verse 3 through 11. It says, and when, Acts chapter 12, verse 3, when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. 
Now it was during the days of unleavened bread. Verse 4, when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out before the people. Verse 5, so Peter kept, was kept in prison, in the prison, but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church of God. Verse 6, on the very night when Herod was about to bring him forward, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and guards in front of the door were watching over the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared, and a light shone in the cell, and he struck Peter's side and woke him up. You think Peter was sleeping pretty soundly through all that? This, this, the angel had to pretty much kick him and get him up. And then he says, get up quickly. And it says, and his chains fell off his hands. Verse 8, and the angel said to him, gird yourself and put on your sandals. And he, and he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and continued to follow. And he did not know what was being done by the angel uh, was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. Verse 10, when they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate that leads into the city, which opened for them by itself, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. In verse 11, when Peter came to himself, he says, now I know for sure that the Lord had sent forth his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all the Jewish people, all that the Jewish people were expecting. See, he had a sense of how God can guard and keep one safe and rescue someone. He knew all about that. And then also, there's one other thing it says in our text in 1 Peter. It's not far off. It's reserved in heaven. It's protected by God. And it's not far off. Verse number 5, it says, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. So in other words, faith trusts the guarding and protecting power of God's almighty power. The aim of that protection is ultimate salvation. So that means everything is ready and complete for full salvation to be revealed. And it will someday be revealed. See, so our eternal salvation will actually be made visible to all. They will see us in Christ. They will see the inheritance that we are given because of our salvation. And it will be visible to all. There's one sad note I have to mention. The people of the world have no inheritance awaiting them at the end of their existence on earth. They have no inheritance. So don't ever say that you're not wealthy. You're so wealthy, there's no words to describe it. See, these are the things that must be in your mind when you're in time of trouble, when you're under a trial, when persecution comes into your life. These are the things you must start thinking about. So the word of God can transform your mind. So what our minds are to dwell upon are these things, our new birth, our new hope, and our sure inheritance.
That's what we ought to be thinking about. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to speak well of your name. And we want to speak well of what you have done in our behalf. The inheritance that you have planned for us astounds us. It causes us, it should cause us, Lord, to be brought in our mind to a place maybe that we've never been. Help us, Lord, even before we receive our inheritance in full, to live lives for you that are comparable to the things that you've done for us. Help us to live a life that is holy and undefiled. And it is your spirit and the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead that we place our hope today. For there's no other way that we can be saved if you didn't take care of all of it for us. So, Lord, we want to humble ourselves today under your mighty hand because, Lord, we know that we're not home yet. And trials may come into our life that we would we didn't plan for, did not expect. Lord, help us to have this mind so that when they do come, these are the things that we can think about. Because, Lord, you will bring to pass everything that is said in this scripture. And, Lord, these things are ours today. We have them by faith. Someday we'll have them by sight. So thank you, Lord. Continue to bless us with a mind that is transformed by scripture. I pray this in your name. Amen. Let's stand together. Coldly.